and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and spooky season is finally upon us. I love Halloween for a number of reasons. For one, pumpkin-shaped Reese's, which have the best peanut butter to chocolate ratio of any Reese's candy, don't at me, but I also really love dressing up. Last year, I was Dorothy with my dog Gus, who resembles Toto. The year before that, I was a Day of the Deadhead with my sugar skull painted face and Grateful Dead shirt. I've been Springsteen, a Sith Lord, a zombie prom queen, a Woodstock 1969 festival goer, and a Chicago Blackhawk player. Most of those I was able to put together just from stuff in my closet, a little face paint, and maybe a quick trip to the thrift store. That's the most fun part to me, cobbling a costume together. And I love answering the door and seeing little kids all dressed up too, practicing gratitude at their parents' behest. But what really makes Halloween Halloween for me is the scary movies. I don't really watch them year-round, but when October comes around, I gravitate toward the older classics. Evil Dead, The Shining, Halloween, Psycho, the list continues. But I was just thinking the other day, why is it that we like horror movies? Why do we choose to bring scary things into our lives in this way, with the jump scares and torture scenes and blood and guts, all of that? So you know me, I went looking for an answer. And I found that there are a lot of reasons psychologically why we like to be scared by film. Psychologist Christopher Dwyer says one is the safety net. A lot of us seek out what he calls controlled fear, meaning when our body goes into fight, flight, or freeze mode, our brains will quickly evaluate the situation and tell us that we're free from risk. Now, that doesn't really count the aftermath. After I watch a scary movie, I'm always avoiding looking behind myself in a mirror and running up my own stairs like I'm being chased. But anyway, when we watch scary movies, we also get a rush of adrenaline, and with that, a biochemical rush of endorphins and dopamine. That, along with the aforementioned total safety, we're left with a sense of relief and well-being. But the reason I enjoy watching scary movies, and one of the main reasons Dwyer says we like them so much, is curiosity about the dark side. The fear of the unknown is one of our most human instincts, and scary movies allow us to engage further with the unknown in a safe environment. It's funny, I just got home last week from a work trip, and I was staying in this super weird hotel. I mean, it was a normal hotel, kind of crappy I guess, but generally pretty clean. Though structurally, it was a challenge. There were two floors with no elevator and just one set of stairs. And my room was on the second floor, room 295. So it's late at night and I'm walking up the stairs to my floor. I follow the numbers on the sign pointing me to go left. Then I went winding down like three or four different hallways still following the signs leading me to room 295. Then I turned the corner to what ended up being the final hallway, and I kid you not, this was the longest, most creepiest hallway I have ever seen. It was absolutely just like the hallways in The Shining. As I walked down the long walk to my room at the very end, I could practically hear the Shining music in my head and half expected to see a pair of dead twins or a rushing wave of blood or something. to my room and locked every lock possible, not that it would matter if Johnny decided to axe through my door. 
but I found it interesting that that's where my brain immediately went walking down that hallway, the music. Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkin's score for The Shining is so memorable, and because it works so perfectly with the film, it creates a lasting memory long after the credits roll. That's really what makes a lot of scary movies so scary, what you're hearing. Definitely what you're seeing can be scary too, but the music for me is what lodges the full experience in my mind for years and years. Which is why I chose today's subject, John Carpenter, who has mastered both the visual and the auditory aspects of horror filmmaking. As you might know, Carpenter composed or had a hand in producing a majority of his own film scores. Today, we'll talk about some of those films and Carpenter's process for composing the music that still haunts us all today. My main source for today's episode was the book John Carpenter, The Prince of Darkness by Gilles Boulanger. It's basically one long, candid interview with Carpenter and a must-read if you're a fan of his or a fan of film in general. I also referenced Jason Zinneman's 2011 piece on Carpenter for the New York Times and listened to Joe Skinner's interview with Carpenter on the American Masters podcast. In 1956, when John Carpenter was eight years old, his family moved from Carthage, New York to Bowling Green, Kentucky, when Carpenter's dad got a job at Western Kentucky University as a music professor. He says his parents were always a huge influence on his filmmaking, especially his dad, who taught him about existentialism and challenged him constantly to ask questions. And he was really interested in film from a young age. Carpenter loved low-budget horror films and science fiction, including It Came From Outer Space by Jack Arnold and Forbidden Planet, directed by Fred McCloud Wilcox. Carpenter received his first movie camera when he was eight, along with an old editing splicer and some glue. He directed his first film not long after that, Revenge of the Colossal Beasts, a 40-minute featurette. As Carpenter got older, he began to see that certain directors did certain things. Each of his favorite director's movies had a signature of some kind. By the angles or sounds or shots, you knew it was theirs. He started to understand the language of movies. And as he kept shooting his own little films at home and around town, he learned the whole process wasn't quite as mysterious as he'd always thought. Making movies became a way for Carpenter to make sense of the world he was living in. Because as he got older, he also began to see a lot more evil in the people around him. Growing up in Bowling Green, he had made friends at school like we all do as kids. But he talks about them to Gilles Boulanger like he's seen a ghost. Carpenter talks about the racism that ran rampant in Bowling Green and how he learned that his friends would cruise around the African-American neighborhoods at night and shoot people sitting on their porch. A girlfriend of Carpenter's one time told him that her grandfather was driving her to school one day and saw a black man walking in a crosswalk, sped up, and ran him over because he says he didn't like the way he was walking. Carpenter, who had grown up in a world of low-budget horror and monster movies, remembers being so stunned and how people could actually be this evil in real life. It had a huge effect on him from a young age. It also made him realize he was in the wrong place entirely. Not only because of the horrific hate crimes happening in this town, but also because he was entirely different from his classmates in nearly every way. By the time he was a teenager, a lot of kids Carpenter's age around the country were producing fanzines. It was a way of making friends, a way to write about and talk about movies. He started corresponding again with friends in bigger cities, back in New York and in Chicago, and thus began thinking about life outside of Bowling Green. 
After Carpenter graduated high school, he attended Western Kentucky University where his dad was still chair of the music department. I'm sure they got a great deal since his dad was faculty, but it wasn't Carpenter's dream to go there. He knew that if he wanted to be a real filmmaker, he'd need to be in the big leagues, in the big city, so he transferred to the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts in 1968. This was a time where USC was the best film school in the entire world. No one had really considered motion pictures worthy of studying before the 60s, and USC was so ahead of its time, especially with its proximity to Hollywood. Some of Carpenter's lecturers included Orson Welles, Roman Polanski, and Alfred Hitchcock. Students had extraordinary access, and inspiration was everywhere. Carpenter actually won his first Oscar while he was still at USC. In 1970, he collaborated with producer John Longnecker as co-writer, film editor, and music composer for The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. He won the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. Well, the film won. The school accepted the Oscar and ended up distributing the film and making a bunch of money on it, none of which was shared with Carpenter or his fellow filmmakers. So for Carpenter's next student film, Dark Star, it wouldn't stay a student film for long. He left USC before graduating, taking Dark Star with him, which would be his first feature film in 1974. Most of Carpenter's musical compositions are improvised on a synthesizer. In film school, he had no money, so there was really no ability to afford a composer or an orchestra to score his films. But the synthesizer was a way for Carpenter to create music that still sounded big and layered enough. Typically, he'd just improvise the whole piece and then cut it into the film where he needed it. But as Carpenter got better at creating his music, he began playing to the images while watching his films back, instead of cutting the music in later. What's funny is that Carpenter never thinks about the composition of a soundtrack before the movie is made. And unlike the careful planning, writing, and editing that goes into his movies, Carpenter's film scores are almost always improvised. His reasoning for that is that music is a pure creation, and he wants to keep it pure by not putting too much thought into it. Carpenter says he can't read music anyway, so it works out okay. I think what makes him one of the best composers is the unique way he uses sound to build up a mood. In any given horror film, you're constantly moving in the direction of tragedy. But that movement is made 100,000 times scarier when there's a little undertone to it. Music that's fitting the scene so well that it oddly makes it feel more real and more in the moment, like you're being pulled into the scene yourself. And in a film like Halloween, for instance, we're taught as an audience to enjoy the chill that comes before the murders, rather than the way Michael Myers kills his victims. And the music is a huge, huge part of creating that atmosphere. With that, let's go through a couple of my favorite Carpenter film scores, starting with his first commercial release, Dark Star, in 1974. Considered an homage to Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, Dark Star was created with Dan O'Bannon, who would go on to direct Alien. Dark Star takes place in the middle of the 22nd century out in space, where humankind is colonizing. The crew on the scout ship Dark Star have been alone in space for 20 years, traveling in advance of colony ships to destroy any planets they deem unstable and may threaten future colonization of other planets. The music in Dark Star was some of Carpenter's earliest and most primitive, where he used just a modular synthesizer. 
But as you start to listen to Carpenter's music through the decades, you can hear chronologically where technology advanced. It went from analog synthesizers and a 24-track machine, to MIDI and digital sequencers, to doing everything on a computer. Let's talk about Assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter's next film in 1976. Precinct 13 takes place in South Central LA, where after a gang steals an accumulation of guns, they are ambushed in the middle of the night by LAPD officers. The gang members make a blood pact to strike back and conduct their own siege on a nearly abandoned police station, and combat ensues. Carpenter says that the theme to Assault on Precinct 13 was inspired by Led Zeppelin's The Immigrant Song. And you'll hear hints in this theme that precede the Halloween theme, like the one sustained note that goes the whole time, then something else coming in over the top of it. Carpenter was also really inspired by Elmer Bernstein's score for The Magnificent Seven, which was the inspiration for the bum bum-ba-da-da-dum rhythmic theme. Let's get on to what is arguably Carpenter's most iconic score, the one for his 1978 film, Halloween. Haddonfield, Illinois. Six-year-old Michael Myers has just returned from trick-or-treating and stabs his older sister to death. Fifteen years later, he escapes from the sanitarium, goes back to Haddonfield, and plans to kill again Halloween night. Required viewing on the holiday for which it's named. One of the best decisions Carpenter made for the score of Halloween was to leave out music almost entirely. There's a lot of time spent in silence, or just listening to wind in the trees. But when those piano notes come in, that's your heart's signal to start beating a little faster. Carpenter says he didn't know from the outset how pivotal this music would be in the film. It's such a simple theme, 
But the music is so important in this movie that it's basically its own character. When Carpenter was a kid, he learned 5-4 time from his dad on a pair of bongos. He ended up writing the Halloween theme in the same time signature, which I think is so great because it's constantly keeping you on edge and there's never really a resolution. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Then you throw in these higher electronic driving notes. It's all so good and so unsettling. The fact that he wrote this in less than three days is even more interesting. It's such a triumph. The music for Halloween is a clear predecessor to Carpenter's next film, 1980's The Fog. You can hear a lot of similarities between the two, including a descending piano part at the beginning. Fog is Carpenter's supernatural horror film about a dense, glowing fog that sweeps a coastal northern California town, and with it, the vengeful ghosts of sailors who were killed in a shipwreck there 100 years ago. The score to The Fog, like a lot of Carpenter's scores, is designed to create an atmospheric sense of dread. John Carpenter believes this was one of his best scores, and I tend to agree. Maybe not the most iconic, but listen to all the different layers in this. You've got the simple piano part, which alone isn't much. But all throughout, this low synth note is pulsing through you as a reminder not to ever turn your back to the fog. It's cheesy 80s for sure, but I really like it. Next, let's talk about Carpenter's 1983 film, Christine. Alternate title, When Your Car is a Stage 5 Clinger. Carpenter pulled a lot of inspiration from some of his past works for this score, including revised elements from the scores for Escape from New York, Halloween, and The Fog. The film's main theme, Christine, is 100% one of the main inspirations for Stranger Things. I think all of Carpenter's work as a whole is a huge inspiration for the creators of that show.
Christine is based on the Stephen King novel of the same name. Christine is a 1958 Plymouth Fury, appropriate, that outcast Arnie Cunningham sees for sale, a wrecked classic car that he falls in love with. As he's restoring Christine, Arnie begins to change, becoming cockier and spending more and more time with his car and disconnecting from reality. One by one, the people around Arnie begin getting killed, and it's always Christine that had something to do with it. Carpenter wrote the electronic score with longtime collaborator Alan Howarth, which they completely improvised to the final cut of the movie. Parentheses Plymouth Fury, is this mechanical, pounding, relentless track that plays when, you guessed it, Christine attacks. One more score I want to talk about is the one for the 1986 film Big Trouble in Little China, which Carpenter says was his turning point into more complex scoring, partly because of the advancements in technology. Carpenter collaborator Kurt Russell plays a truck driver who takes his friend to the airport to pick up his girlfriend. But before they can get to her, she's kidnapped by an immortal creature who must marry a Chinese woman with green eyes in order to turn back into a mortal human. Hence, the big trouble. That's probably one of Carpenter's weirdest movies that, in turn, has built up the biggest cult following. It even inspired the creators of the video game Mortal Kombat inspired by Big Trouble's combination of a Western world that meets an Eastern supernatural world. The track we're listening to, titled Pork Chop Express, is based around an electric guitar theme, and it's named for the truck used in the movie. It feels like a road song, doesn't it? It actually reminds me a lot of a couple tracks on the new Sturgill Simpson soundtrack, Sound and Fury, especially his song Remember to Breathe. Technically, Big Trouble in Little China is a Western, and Carpenter didn't want to use the usual musical cliches used by other American movies about Chinese characters. So instead, he got inspired by rock music and, of course, his trademark synthesizer.
One of Carpenter's films that he didn't fully score himself is the now cult classic, The Thing. Ennio Morricone, one of Carpenter's personal heroes, was partly responsible for that score. Morricone is well known for his more than 400 film compositions, including the iconic soundtrack for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Carpenter stopped making films for a period of time in the late 90s, partly because of a long string of flops and poor critical reviews. He also felt like after three decades in the movie business, his family had become secondary to his career, and he hated that. But he did get a chance recently to work with his son, Cody Carpenter, on the new Halloween score. The new Halloween, which came out in 2018, was directed by David Gordon Green, but producer Jason Bloom asked Carpenter to score Michael Myers' Homecoming. His score is richer this time around, updated with more modern synthesizers and guitars, and 40 years of practice. It's a little too polished, like the synthesizers are actually in tune this time and it feels maybe a little too perfect compared to the twistedness of the original, but it's still pretty dang cool. Recently, the Death Waltz Record Company reissued several of Carpenter's soundtracks, which renewed an interest in John Carpenter's music so much that he actually went on tour as a musician. He had dates spanning all of October last year and ending on Halloween night at the Hollywood Palladium. Carpenter is a rare presence in the American filmmaking story, whose unique and inspired work has come to gain cult status in most circles. Countless film composers and musicians cite him as an influence, including Hans Zimmer and Guillermo del Toro. In J.J. Abrams' Super 8, you even see a Halloween poster. He's everywhere. And though he's played writer, director, producer, editor, and actor, the role of composer is what will always set John Carpenter apart for me. Because let's face it, Michael Myers is a very scary guy, but when you hear that piano part, you're practically transported into the screen and being chased yourself.
thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope you have a great Halloween. We're back to albums in the next episode with My Bloody Valentine's Loveless from 1991. I got a couple requests for an episode on this album, and it's one I had never really explored before until now. And I am shook it. Cannot wait to discuss this one. I'm traveling for work this week, and then my birthday is this weekend, and I have such wonderful people in my life planning a whole schedule of activities. You'll see this new episode on November 12th. Give Loveless a listen, and I'll see you back here then.